0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with John Wong. John is a medical student and researcher at UCSF and an AI researcher with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. John, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast.
1: Hey, Sam, thanks for having me. Really excited to chat today.
0: Yeah, super excited as well. You know, would love to hear a little bit about your background and journey. We're going to be spending some time talking about AI and healthcare. And I'm, I'm curious what attracted you to work in that field?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've always been really interested in medicine. I think that's kind of where a lot of the healthcare interests started from. So you know, personal experiences and family and friends and community have really pulled me into healthcare. And while I was an undergraduate at Stanford, really cared about community building and social change and started organizations like Stanford's undergraduate hospice group, where we uh, get people out and volunteering with elderly populations and also um, starting a high school science tournament, just focused on educating people about science and like getting people inspired about it. And more recently, uh, before COVID working with like homeless shelter clinic and specifically leading their mental health support group. It's something that's, I've always been really interested in, rooted in, but on, you know, kind of in parallel. So in, in high school, I I got my first taste of data science at MIT, working as a researcher, um, data science researcher, uh, look on undergrad, looking at basically unsupervised learning and how we can cluster HIV T cell cell populations. And then in college, started taking more computer science classes, really loved it. The rest was kind of history, took the vast majority of like all the deep learning coursework I could at Stanford, worked at Apple for a bit, and really did a lot of research into deep learning and clinical decision support tools. And yeah, now, nowadays functioning mainly in two roles right now. I am a researcher and medical student at UCSF, I'm looking at healthcare disparities and AI and in also doing some uh, research at the Gates Foundation, helping advise their digital health portfolio. So yeah, really interested in how we can tackle both local and global healthcare disparities.
0: Awesome, and I have a note that you started ten startups or student or you know and/or student organizations <laughs> while you're at Stanford. That's got to be like you know peak Stanford. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of startups.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
0: Unless you were, you don't, you don't look like you were there for ten years. <laughs> yeah, I
1: wasn't there for ten years. It was. I love Sanford. You know, everyone's building something and a lot of collaborations with people. Yeah. Really tapped into the entrepreneurial uh, community. Um, awesome. Yeah, really fortunate to have launched like a startup into uh, nonprofits during that time. So, and then a bunch of different organizations and things like that. Yeah.
0: And so while you were there at Stanford, one of the things you dug into was the electronic health records and kind of the, the state of that technology. And, you know, when we think about the the promise of ML and AI in healthcare, you know, as in other applications of ML and AI, everything kind of depends on, you know, data. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, we due to kind of government regulation, you know, we've adopted these EHR systems, but that data is kind of notoriously messy. Um, mm-hmm. you know, tell us a little bit about your, you know, what you've seen, you know, looking about looking into the EHR systems and kind of what the, you know, what your project there was focused on.
1: Yeah. I, I really like talking about this. I think there's so much potential for AI to, you know, be translated more properly into the healthcare setting. And, you know, it really does start with the data, as you said. And I think, I think I like to give a little bit more of a framework around how the healthcare system works because it gives a lot of, gives a lot of like a basis to talk about like how the data was developed. And so when you think about healthcare, there's kind of like three pairs, there's, or sorry, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a three pair system. So one of them is like the insurance companies. One of them is the hospital or provider. The third one is the patient. So um this is really unique system that is in the US and you can think about how like the incentive incentive systems kind of get messed up. So if I'm a doctor and I'm getting paid by insurance and the patient is paying the insurance, my incentive is to spend as much money as possible, get the as much money from the insurance company as possible because the patient already paid their insurance bill. They're not gonna get charged more if I ordered like 10 more procedures onto the patient. So you can see how this can cause such a large problem in the healthcare industry. We've seen incredibly large costs coming in every year growing more than any other country in the world. And yeah, so then this kind of sets the framework. So, you know, for a long time, no one wanted to implement an electronic health record because like who's going to pay for it, right? So, you know, Congress like releases a bill, the High Tech Act, and we finally get electronic health records in place but by incentivizing, you know, hospitals to incorporate them. And, but how do hospitals make money? They make money by billing to insurance companies. So we have basically electronic health records where we store all patient data optimized for billing, nothing else, (laughs) which is ridiculous, right? So, so you'll see uh, now, finally, after like five, years, we're finally getting data out on it. And it's like, you know, 50% of physicians are burnt out these days and 70% um, are attributed in part to computer usage. We're seeing like half the time physicians who are paid like, you know, 200,000 to a million dollars, depending on what specialty you are, half their time is spent in front of a computer screen, not doing their job, putting information into a computer. So you can imagine like this is kind of the landscape people are working in now and I think this is like a really, really interesting area for new technology and specif- especially AI to kind of offload some of the work that clinicians have to do entering information into the electronic health record and kind of set the stage for my project, which was clinical decision support tools specifically. Like, so right nowadays, when you go into the hospital, and, and you're a physician, you're, you're going to go into the electronic health record, and you have a patient with pneumonia, and you're going to pull up something called a pneumonia order set. And it's going to have like five different items that drugs or um, different labs you might need to order, and it's all in there. And you kind of just drag and drop into your like shopping cart, and then you press enter, and then you there you go, you, you've ordered your things. So my project, working with Dr. Jonathan Chen at Sanford, was to basically apply deep learning to uh, develop a system in which just automatically, like using past patient history, can we just automatically extrapolate like, oh, what are the next items that we should order in, the, in, the, in 24 hours for this patient? Just based on like all the data and electronic health record that we have. So really cool project looking at like over 55 million rows of patients, 000, or 55 million rows of data, 100,000 of patients, uh, really um, great time. Yeah.
0: Where did that data come from? Is that out of the Stanford Hospital System, or
1: yeah? So out of the Stanford Hospital System, they have something called Star, and it's actually a really great system at Stanford, where you can um, basically get the data in a really secure environment and have like basically Google Cloud computing ca- capabilities uh, nowadays hmm. without having any risk of uh, leakage of data.
0: And is Star their EHR system, or do they use something like Epic or one of the commercial? Mm-hmm electronic health record systems.
1: Yeah, Stanford uses Epic. And I think Epic is pretty much the main uh, electronic health record used basically everywhere. And there are problems there as well, but...
0: (laughs) There are problems there. (laughs) Yeah, so so STAR is something that connects to Epic and allows researchers like yourself easy access to the data to do studies?
1: Yeah, so basically the way it works is so I'm not 100% familiar with all the ways that they work, but I think they basically extract some of the data from the hospital. And then after that, they kind of like have restricted access based on like, you have to basically submit proposals to like something called the Institutional Review Board or um, getting approval from Stanford itself to get access to the data. So it's not like anyone could just use it. Sure, yeah. um, actually at UCSF though, where I'm doing research now, basically you can query the patient database like instantaneously and they update it every month with new patients information, but obviously
0: publicly without going through
1: publicly, you'll still need uh, the layers of restriction, but it's not as much of like a extract than like, you know, let me get Ah, this like lump sum of data and then let me work on it. And now you can actually be like, Oh, I want to experiment on next month's data using this past month's data, like kind of like a, Time, uh, time, time series split or whatever, if you want. So okay. it's really interesting.
0: Huh? Interesting. And so you were able to tap into this data source from the Stanford hospitals using Star. It was output of EHR records, and you were trying to do what with deep learning specifically?
1: Yeah. So basically, uh, when they come to the hospital, they're they're going to have like a time point in which a clinician interacts with them. And when they interact with the clinician, they're going to have to order like, oh, this patient needs antibiotics for the pneumonia, for example, or we need to order a strep test or, you know, a bunch of different things that like complete blood count, like a bunch of different things that uh, are needed to get ordered. And like clinicians have to manually like search all these different items and then put them into their cart. And basically what we're trying to do is automate that process. So we look at like, you know, at this time point, when a clinician interacted with a patient, can we look at all the past information, electronic health records? So like, you know, patient's demographics, patient's primary diagnosis, any past medications they've had, any past visits they've had, information like that to um, predict, you know, in the next 24 hours, what type of items do we need to order for this patient to uh, facilitate like, uh, first of all, to like help a clinician if they miss anything. And second of all, to kind of just speed the process up in which clinicians are interacting with the computer.
0: And so was the idea that you were ordering stuff in advance of the actual appointment or was it more trying to create almost like a recommendation system so that, you know, the clinic clinicians there in front of the computer with the patient and it's asking, hey, you might want, you know, the pneumonia pack, you might want this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's more of the a recommender system kind of like amazon like yeah. you can't purchase someone's well actually they have those buttons now and stuff but there's a huge issue of accountability in healthcare. like who's going to be liable if you order the wrong item for a patient automatically using an right. algorithm yeah it's a whole thing but that's basically how it works
0: yeah okay talk a little bit about the Kind of execution of the project itself. You have all this data. Did you have to do a lot of kind of cleansing and manipulation of the data before you started to train the model?
1: Yeah. So honestly, uh, this was like kind of one of my first like big deep learning projects. Ran into a bunch of issues. Uh, One of the biggest (laughs) issues we actually ran into was just, you know, this data set was so large. We're like, oh, we have 55 million rows of data. How are we going to deal with this? Like every time we put it up, we tried to use the data it would like basically like the memory would explode on the it would just be too high and then we have to like restart so we were like a bunch of like undergraduates at Stanford trying to figure out how are we going to do this and yeah it was a really interesting project really fortunate that they kind of the lab I work at really specializes in clinical decisions and and how we can um, automate that process so they have like a pipeline that basically extracts the electronic health record data and then puts in a format where it's kind of like a structured data matrix Mm -hmm. with you know this patient's at at this time each row is like a clinical patient clinical item so like every time a clinical item is ordered there's like a row in the data frame and then it it says like oh this is all the information the past like a past 30 30 days past month past year like little like basically boolean values for every single uh, feature which could be you know th- this lab test uh, was whether or not this lab test was ordered whether or not this treatment team was ordered so very much like a structured data set yeah. um, which so made you, a lot easier to deal with
0: you had a p- off-the-shelf pipeline that kind of featureized the EHR data and like did one hot encoding for the various mm-hmm. uh, features that you might want to take a look at that so that must have saved a ton of. Yes, work.
1: exactly. That being said, it did take a long time to get it to work for our task, but thank yeah. thankful that that existed beforehand. Yeah. um made what things a lot biggest, easier.
0: What was the biggest challenge in getting it to work for your task?
1: So I think the biggest challenge was mostly just figuring out what features we wanted to use, because you know there's basically over like a hundred thousand features. That's Way, way more than 100,000 features, but like 700,000 features even. And we had to uh, figure out how we wanted to narrow that down. So one of the ways we did that was using kind of something called the 80-20 power law, which is where like, you know, you look at, if you look at like the clinical items, like there's a certain amount of, some of them are used like so much more frequently than others, but, and then there's like a eighty fast, so like 80%, for example, are used like pretty much all the time, but then there's like Um, sorry, 20% of them are used like pretty much all the time and 80% of them are pretty much used never. So we can just eliminate all those (laughs) clinical items. Yeah.
0: And did you arrive at that as a result of experimentation as opposed to, you know, we we often think of these deep learning algorithms as, Mm -hmm. you know, both very data hungry and also you know, very good at finding patterns in kind of this highly dimensional data. So often, you know, people will, you know, compared to traditional machine learning where you're doing a lot of like feature engineering and feature selection, you know, often people think, hey, let's just throw it all at the deep learning model and let it figure it out. Did you did you find that that just wasn't working?
1: Yeah, yeah. So to answer your question, I think like feed forward model was kind of like the one we threw it out at initially. And mm-hmm. You know, it it worked pretty well, but the training speed was so slow, and we just didn't have the funding to um, use such like really expensive computing resources. So um, basically, we decided to uh, try and form the eighty twenty power law and a bunch of a couple of other small like
0: pesky economic lessons. considerations. Yes, some of we, this, uh... the
1: problems of academia usually is that you you don't get money because no one's who's going to pay for it. Like the government is or NIH or yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you explore at all the the ramifications of the applying the eighty twenty parallel? Like, how many, you know, what percent of doctor, you know, visits or activities or something like that weren't served by the model? How did you characterize that?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Basically, we so we didn't remove any of the actual like interactions with the electronic health record that the clinician had, but we removed like some of the data and the features. And to assess whether or not it made sense, like I mentioned earlier, we like kind of threw all the data at initially, and then we we kind of decreased the amount of data and features that we had later. And it showed that comparable performance, if not even better, because we were able to train for longer and iterate more with high parameters.
0: Got it. So the model was still able to make all the same sets of recommendations. It. Uh, just did that on, you know, somewhat smaller input data and it, it did fine. Or if not better. Is that oh
1: yeah, I guess in terms of the outputs. Yeah, the outputs we definitely truncated because I mean oh, we already okay. had like over a thousand different clinical decisions that we were recommending. But the thing is like the ones that we don't recommend are just so rare that's like there's no point that you would ever recommend it because it's just so rare. It's like maybe like point one percent of visits. So like why would you recommend? Yeah. Like there's no point in like putting that in the model. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so in thinking about kind of this broader, this clinical decision support application, you know, just your experience was, was kind of deep learning a a good fit for it, or did you Mm -hmm. go on to try other approaches or, you know, what was the kind of summary summary of the project? Is this something that, you know, ever kind of made it into a production environment or was it more learning opportunity? So this
1: is a common issue. I think where we, in academia, you come up with a bunch of ideas, you work on them and then they don't get put in translation. And I think yeah. right now, actually my PI is working on implementing it into the hospital but not necessarily a deep learning algorithm, maybe because we we have a bunch of different models that we use. And there's a huge push in healthcare for explainability, explainable AI because yeah. of liability issues and things like that. And yeah, I, I think another big issue, actually, that I'd love to talk more about is just like how using ex- retrospective data and electronic health record really can perpetuate a lot of disparities in, in healthcare just because, like, our data sets already have a lot of those issues just ingrained into them, and there there've been a lot of issues around that too.
0: Yeah, tell tell us more about that. Yeah, I'd
1: love to. One thing is just uh, that I've been working on at UCSF, which has I've been really interested in, is like, you know, how how does AI affect healthcare disparities? How can we be better about working on technology that's not leaving behind a group that's historically been marginalized? And, you know, one of the, one of the things I do is like look into the literature, trying to do like a systematic scoping review. And, you know, if you just search on PubMed artificial intelligence, you get a hundred thousand results, right? And then if you search artificial intelligence and athlete, you get 1,500. And then if you search artificial intelligence and vulnerable populations or homeless populations or refugees, you get less than 60 articles. Mm. That's. 0.0006% 0.0006% of you know all of the articles that are on artificial intelligence and you know i think it's just a small field and if you just look at the amount of ai talent that is in the nonprofit or healthcare setting i was just looking at like a statistic the other day on linkedin it was like you know 4% of ai talent is in the nonprofit or healthcare setting there's like very few people thinking about this issue of and healthcare in general, and then if you look even dial even deeper, like AI and healthcare for vulnerable populations, there's even less people with uh, kind of skin in the game, right? Like who who's really actually going to get care about these populations and actually make sure that AI is being implemented correctly? And you know, a really great example. So just a couple, one or two years ago, there was this algorithm implemented on 200 million Black Americans by Optum, and basically the goal was to reduce healthcare costs, right? And so they did this by applying a risk score based on a bunch of different factors, but mainly like cost being the number one factor. And after that, you give them a risk score. After you give them a risk score, you allocate resources appropriately in terms of like how much this person's higher risk, let's give them more resources in in healthcare in the the hospital.
0: And just to be clear, when you said higher risk, you mean financial risk on the part of the hospital like a credit score kind of assessment or some uh medical risk
1: yeah i believe it was more like financially so like if they have higher future projected costs then we want to like allocate resources now to prevent the cost to get that high later so basically something that happened was that so they were labeling White Americans and Black Americans with uh, say say a white American and a Black American got the same score. It turned out that Black Americans with the same score had a lot more comorbidities or healthcare issues that needed attention, but they weren't being rated at a higher risk score. And the reason why was because basically, like if you look at the costs of healthcare between two uh, a white person and a Black person, even if they cost the same, the issue is that Black Americans they would actually require a lot more costs. But right now in the existing healthcare system, we're not giving them enough. So there's this huge misnomer in the data. And then we ch- they train these algorithms on that already, you know, erroneous data set. And then basically perpetuate this huge disparity in healthcare uh, resource allocation. Like uh, basically there was like 18% of resources were allocated to uh, black Americans, but the projection should have been like 46%, something like that in and, and, um certain settings. So it's it's a really drastic disparity in how much they should have like actually taken care of these populations.
0: And and so have you done some projects in this area as well?
1: Yeah. So uh right now uh working with Dr. Irma Malasarkar on uh basically two projects. One looking at some of the history behind, you know, AI and healthcare disparities and like what things we need to think about in academia and in industry to uh, make sure that we are, you know, properly translating these technologies into the clinic in ways that are helping everyone, not just a select population. And then also working on like a systematic scoping review, which is kind of like looking at all the literature in, in uh, primary care and AI, and trying to see what what are the gaps and like what are the things that researchers should be doing more often to uh, really be proponents or helping progress the field more towards like more equitable uh, use of AI.
0: Cool. And the, the scoping review, that is a kind of a literature review and and search. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it would be relatively easy given that your prior (laughs) statistic that there's actually no literature on the topic.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) our strategy has been, yeah, first of all, it's really disappointing that there's like no literature. We're just like, Oh my gosh, like we can't do, this is like useless. Like we're going to read like a, maybe less than a hundred articles and then Uh summarize it. No one, no one's going to care. So basically the goal here is we're going to look at all the articles on AI and primary care. And then from there, kind of like how many articles actually even talk about perpetuating disparities? How many articles even do some kind of like a subgroup analysis? Like, are they even looking at how their algorithm performs across different types of patients? Or are they just saying, Oh, here's like one score. And then like, you know, you can imagine a scenario which actually has been studied and shown for like X-ray classifiers where like, you know, we perform extremely well on the white patients, but then on black patients or marginalized, other marginalized uh, communities are just going to have like way lower, like scores on performance. And, um, you know, part of the issue is like a data issue. Like, you know, we have a lot less data, but also the data is like fraught with a lot of historical and uh, institutional biases, just, inherent in, in the data sources that people need to be more aware of, I think.
0: What are some examples of those?
1: One of them is just like cardiovascular risk, for example. You know, black patients have a lot higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, not because of necessarily any biology, just because of, you know, we we they have poor access to healthcare worse worse access to healthcare, worse like access to education, like a lot of different factors, like targeted advertising about like sugary drinks and things like that. There's just so much that is out of control, out of people as they grow up and live their lives. Because of this, there's like an association, right? Like you might have an algorithm that just like really highly like puts someone at um, just constantly recommending someone to you know, get more interventions on their cardiovascular, um, health, even though like it it might not actually make sense. Just like, say you have a white and a black patient.
0: Picking up up cues based on race or something like that. Yeah. Applying those as opposed to actual indicators from their physical condition.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's also this, this issue of like missing data. Like some people just aren't really good at, you know, for good reason. Like they have other things to be worrying about, like putting food on the table or something like that. And they're not as well able to like get to the clinic and like see the doctor and you have this huge, like missing data bias almost. So it's like really difficult. I think the problem is really difficult and, and Mm -hmm. people are still thinking about it, but.
0: So the, so the approach with your investigation there is to, you know, as opposed to reviewing existing literature, kind of benchmark reviewing existing literature on disparities benchmark the broader literature on the degree to which they're recognizing and taking stock of disparities in their own work.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. Better explained than I did it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) And cool. That's work that you're doing now in parallel with the work that you're doing at uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? Yeah. That's the UTSF project.
1: Yes, it's UCSF project. Okay. And you
0: also I, I, at Bill and Melinda Gates?
1: Yeah, so working at the Gates Foundation as well with Andrew Trister at the Digital Health Innovation Team. And right. that's really been exciting um, to see another side of AI being applied in a nonprofit setting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially as like a funder. And basically I help. I teach a course on AI and, and for the foundation, just helping people understand more like what AI is, like what are the things we should be thinking about when translating into lower middle-income country settings and also kind of help advise their portfolio in terms of like companies coming in and out and uh, vetting yeah. them.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so the can you maybe talk a little bit about the broader type of work that the foundation is doing around health and in the countries that it's working in?
1: Yeah, happy to talk more about that. I think right now we have a lot of investments just like f- focused on building digital health infrastructure. So a lot of the issues I think in we'll see this in healthcare in the in the US and in even more so in normal income country settings is that there's just no data to work with in the first place. It's a lot of a lot of work needs to be done to build the infrastructure, to collect the data in like a way that's you know, respectful of people's privacy and also labels that we can actually rely on. And that's kind of been the primary focus. But also, we have been translating some tools from the US or Europe and trying to implement them in the lower income country setting. And there are a bunch of issues people are running into now uh, along that lines.
0: So we're not talking about translating language, translating, you're talking about kind of broader, like, there's a tool that works in the U S to do something and you get, please give examples. You know, what's the analogous tool in the Congo, for example.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me give an example. So, I mean, this isn't a project that we're working on right now, but some people might have heard of like the Google diabetic retinopathy paper that came out where, you know, we're able to, uh, you know, with 90% accuracy or some somewhere around there detect whether a someone has diabetic retinopathy just with the image of the um, eye. Right. And that's pretty impressive, I think. And, you know, the goal here, they had a project, like the first implementation of this was going to be in Thailand. And their goal was to uh, basically uh, implement it there and like speed up the processes. Basically like, you know, you're cutting out the need for as many physicians. Like, you know, there's a lot of like incentives to do this. And like, it's really exciting that they were able to uh, translate that project into a pilot study there. And you know, basically, there's this huge problem that they ran into, right? There was distrust in the technology. There was delays in internet upload speed, and uh, their their images were often not high quality enough to actually like spit out like a result. So actually, what result uh, what happened was that there's like poor lighting there. They kept they kept rescheduling appointments because like they would the the images they took got rejected, and and. Which turned out to be like around twenty percent. Like I think like twenty percent of the images were being rejected from the algorithm because it wasn't like high quality enough. And mm-hmm. ultimately, like all of these delays made it made the system actually even worse. So you can imagine just how many like layers of barriers there 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 becomes when trying to translate different technologies in these settings um, with poor internet, maybe poor electricity. And for us, we focus a lot on like online offline technologies like. Technology that like can be online and offline, and also algorithms that you can have on your phone. That like, because one of the very common strategies that we're uh, employing is just like in in like a Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, the most common way to get access to healthcare in like rural communities is through something called like community health worker. So these are people who kind of like report back to the. Public health agencies about people's health. and I um, also administer vaccines or uh, offer certain medications. And these people, if you offer them a smartphone, there are opportunities for them to be screening people more or offering being able to detect really like, for example, one thing is like handheld ultrasounds that people are trying to get around. like if you give a handheld ultrasound to a community health worker and then you can scan it and then you know maybe they don't really understand like fetal biology, which, honestly, it's extremely complicated. But if the uh, algorithm outputs something that's like, oh, like you should uh, get this per- patient referred to an OB-GYN specialist because of XYZ, like, that's like an incredibly uh, valuable opportunity, I think, to make a change in, in someone's mm-hmm. life.
0: Uh, what's interesting to me about all of that is how, you know, I often think about how much of kind of effective AI is about kind of the you know almost the user experience of the the ai how someone actually uses it and i think this project that you're working on or the work that you're doing at the the gates foundation or that they're doing in this domain is kind of highlighting that you know effective user interface for you know an ai system is not one size fits all universal it lives in a world of constraints and the constraints you know, are different in different parts of the world. And I think we take the the cloud for, for granted for like AI inference systems a lot. There's also a lot of talk about the edge, but that distinction, you know, becomes make or break for a lot of applications depending on where you are.
1: Yeah, and I think nowadays, another thing we've been noticing is just that like, you know, if you look at technology funding to local founders in East Africa, only 5% is actually going to local founders 95% of technology funding is going to like people who are coming from outside of the country and we really are we really care at the Gates Foundation about building communities and building up local talent and one really uh really great structure i've seen like carnegie mellon U- university has a program called carnegie mellon university africa where they actually have professors living in africa sending professors over there to live there for a couple of years and Teaching students about you know AI technology you know and I think that's I think things efforts like that I think are really going to change are are what we really need to build better infrastructures that are actually going to be like technology is actually going to help these people because it's not going to be you have to engage with the community if you're ever going to serve a community I think and that's just like a something everyone learns through trial and error but I think that's just you know with whole movement of human centered design things like that we keep seeing like you know engaging with the community is just so important
0: awesome well john it was great to chat with you and learn a little bit about what you're up to at uh ucsf and the the gates foundation and all your many endeavors at stanford (laughs) thanks sam i really enjoyed the talk same here all right everyone that's our show for today